Philip, um, I have three $10 bills laying down here on the table, and um, two of them are authentic, and one of them is counterfeit. How would you be able to tell which is which? <laughs> to be honest, I'm not really sure. I, I, I suppose you look at maybe how different people would counterfeit it and see if you could recognize that, or I'm not really sure, Stan. How do you do that? Well, I, I uh, talked to the sheriff about that issue, and he said, no, no, the way you really understand counterfeiting is to be an expert on the authentic. So you have to understand authentic to the fullest degree in order to then see if something is counterfeit to that. Welcome to the Legacy Project Podcast, the conversation that utilizes early American history as a way to explore and sustain our legacy of liberty. This series is intended to be enjoyed sequentially. Follow along with us as we discuss the foundational ideas of America that transformed the course of history and left each of us a legacy of liberty. Greetings and felicitations. Welcome to Legacy Project Episode 2. This is Stan and I'm here with Philip. And today we're going to talk about the Declaration of Independence. We're going to be reading the words and understanding them in the context of the time they were written by the people that wrote them. Uh, so Stan, as we're looking today at the Declaration of Independence and looking at the words of themselves, like you said, we study the truth. I think it's a great analogy. We study the truth to right. try and then be able to recognize the counterfeit. Mm-hmm. We're looking at it. How do we understand the Declaration? You know, here we are a couple hundred years later. How do we understand that in, in, in the time today and, and, and really understand what the words are saying to us? Sure. Uh, Context is really critical to comprehension, and it's important to understand the uh, forces and factors that influenced the the fellows that were in Philadelphia drafting the Declaration. So the best way to do that, I've got a little uh, soundtrack on some history, starting with uh, 1607, which was the first English colony in the New World, and it'll take us right up to 1776, Uh, when they drafted the Declaration of Independence. So let's listen to this, and then we can discuss it further. America, 1607 to 1776. In 1607, a group of merchant ships, licensed by the King of England, landed in the New World and established Jamestown, Virginia. Since this first colony, Americans have had an independent, self-reliant spirit. These colonists acknowledged the king, but recognized they could not depend on help or support from a nation thousands of miles across the sea. They were here on behalf of the Virginia Company, seeking fortunes and glory for themselves. Their priority was a commercial venture, not the conquest of a nation. Later in that century, another group of colonists arrived in Massachusetts. This group was not seeking commercial gain, but was escaping from religious persecution. These Puritan pilgrims were also aware that the king licensed the privately owned ships they sailed on, but to a large extent it was the crown itself they were fleeing. There was little loyalty to the king or trust of the Church of England by these pilgrims because of their Protestant beliefs that rejected the political entanglements of both. To the pilgrims, the collusion and corruption of the church was an affront to God, who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be their true king and savior. As time went on, the new colonies grew, the British Empire more or less acquired the colonies without having to conquer them. Nearly all of the commercial ventures failed, 
but the colonists were still predominantly Englishmen, so the crown simply absorbed the colonies into the British Empire without having to fight other nations for territory or control. In fact, in the early years, no English armies were present, so the small communities organized their own military forces to protect themselves. It was the local militias that handled military entanglements with the native populations or other marauding groups. Political bodies were also needed to help the communities deal with legal and commercial issues, but the king and parliament did not necessarily sanction these locally organized institutions. In most instances, the crown ignored them. Even the Church of England was not the dominant religious institution in America. Congregationalists, Quakers, Methodists, Calvinists, Baptists, and other denominations were thriving in certain regions, reducing the relevance of the traditional church. Early American society dealt with their problems and desires in their own ways, while the crown pretty much ignored the colonies. Eventually, authorities representing the crown were sent to the New World where they found the culture rough and uncivilized. Most royal governors that were appointed by the king were more interested in returning to England than staying in America to govern. Although Americans considered themselves Englishmen, loyalty to the crown was negligible. Around 1700, British troops were stationed in the New World to fight against the French and Indians. Despite this need for protection, the cultural differences between the colonists and those who were sent to protect them became more pronounced. British soldiers thought the locals were incompetent, undisciplined, and unreliable. The colonists found the British to be arrogant, condescending, and exceedingly inflexible, particularly when fighting in the American wilderness. Neither liked or respected the other, even though they were all fighting for king and country. These experiences accumulated for more than a century, keeping the British crown and the American colonies separated culturally as well as geographically. In the early 1700s, the king and parliament began to view the colonies as a new source of revenue. Taxes and tariffs had always been levied on imports and exports, but not on commerce within the colonies. Suddenly, small taxes, duties, and tariffs began to be imposed on the colonies. The colonists reacted strongly, rebelling against each new tax or duty with protests and embargoes. The king and parliament would then repeal the objectionable tax, but would soon replace it with another. The local governing bodies pleaded for the ability to participate in decisions about taxing their colonies, but this was met with contempt. In many cases, the local governors, appointed by the king, reacted by dissolving the local legislatures, further alienating the colonies. No taxation without representation became the call throughout the colonies, and this escalated into protests that inevitably escalated into violence. Many colonial leaders were beginning to demand representation, citing their rights as free Englishmen. But the king and parliament would not yield and resisted any encroachment on their authority. During this same time, many European philosophers and American theologians were challenging the age-old institutions of government and religion that kept kings and their cronies in power, no matter how corrupt and destructive they became. These new philosophies were described as the Enlightenment and presented a dramatic new perspective about the dignity of mankind and his potential to flourish as a free person, not as a subject. Traveling ministers also preached new theologies and spread new religious ideas throughout America. Their sermons challenged the role of the church that was connected to the crown, while emphasizing the Protestant doctrine of Jesus Christ as a personal savior. 
As a result, the validity of a state-supported church to gain God's grace was questioned. This period of Christian revival was labeled the Great Awakening. By 1765, the influences of unjust taxation, philosophical enlightenment, and religious revival converged with the cultural characteristics of rugged individualism and self-sufficiency, accelerating the deteriorating relationship between the colonies and the crown. In March of 1770, British troops killed several protesters in Boston, and this came to be known as the Boston Massacre. The colonists were outraged, and more protests ensued. The Crown responded with more troops and more taxes. Three years later, the Boston Tea Party occurred, further angering the Crown. The King responded by closing Boston Harbor, which required the stationing of even more ships and troops in Massachusetts. As anger and distrust grew, British troops were sent to Lexington and Concord, just outside of Boston, to confiscate the gunpowder and arms stockpiled by the local militia. Paul Revere warned these communities that the Redcoats are coming. And when the Minutemen went to protect their armories, the British soldiers fired on and killed several of these colonists. This aggressive act galvanized all of the colonies to fight back against King George, and a few months later, colonial troops gathered on a hill overlooking Boston Harbor, attempting to drive the British out. But they were defeated at the Battle of Bunker Hill and retreated. It was becoming clear the tensions were escalating, so representatives from each colony secretly met in Philadelphia to decide what to do. With few victories and several significant defeats, the Continental Congress pinned their hopes on George Washington as commander of the Continental Army. The 13 colonies were now officially at war with England, and the two sides were fighting each other on several fronts throughout the colonies. Despite this, the Continental Congress spent over a year debating and arguing, trying to decide if the colonies were going to continue attempts to compromise with the king or declare independence, establishing a separate nation. Finally, on July 4, 1776, the Declaration of Independence was adopted and sent to the king. Copies of the document were read or distributed to the people of what was now the 13 United States of America. We were formally separated from England and the king. Our purpose was clear, but our destiny was not. The process of becoming a separate nation took more than 30 years, and during most of this time, the idea of becoming an independent country was not a consideration. However, the document that is the Declaration of Independence has become the quintessential pronouncement that establishes the principles and ideals of the United States. Who we are, why we exist, what we stand for, how we are governed, and the entire structure of our American society are eloquently stated in the few paragraphs of the Declaration. Most Americans have read or been exposed to the Declaration of Independence and know of its importance. But the meaning of America's founding document has faded over time. We are all living the legacy articulated in the Declaration, so all of us should have at least a basic understanding of what it says and why its timeless principles are still relevant today. Well, Philip, there's a lot in there. Uh, hopefully not too much for you to keep up with. Uh, there's a lot. It's like drinking out of a fire hose, but a lot of... Uh, boy, it's amazing to just see how the, the convergence of all of these things at this time and now the impact that we get to live out this American experiment. Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of people think that, you know, it was... We woke up one day and said, let's separate from England. But it really was a very long process. And a lot of things were happening. There was... Um, 
the big things. There were two big movements. One was the philosophical movement uh, called the Enlightenment. It's also called the Age of Reason. Uh, the other movement was a theological movement called the Great Awakening, where Protestant uh, ministers were preaching up and down the coast. Uh, they'd go from town to town on horseback, and they would spend a few days in the town with a sermon on every block, every corner. And uh, it's really quite an amazing thing how much territory they covered and how much impact they actually had on the population. So how how do we see those things influencing the things that we see in the Declaration and those events, what, what are some specific ways that those sort of influence the thinking of a time and then that made it obviously into the legacy that we're living out? Sure. Well, those were huge impacts. Uh, and when we go through the Declaration, it's really helpful to evaluate what they're being said from a philosophical term as well as from a theological term. And we'll also study the ideology uh, let me define what those yeah, can words you break are. those down? What philosophical and yeah. how do you break down those those buckets of those those sure. terms? Well, in philosophy, I would define as man's relationship within society or mankind. It's not gender. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, so we're examining ourselves within society. Uh, theology is man's relationship with God. That's pretty understood, and kind of the history of all societies has a uh, religious or a theological component. Ideology is man's relationship with government. And you can just simply think of that in terms of the Revolutionary War. It's an ideological battle between government as well as the people. So we'll examine the Declaration in those three forms as we go through the various phrases and uh, sections of the Declaration. A couple of other things were incredibly influential that are usually skipped over. So we came to this country, the ancestors came to this country, and there wasn't anything here. It's a wilderness. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't rely on the crown, which was thousands of miles away, months and months and months to get here. And you really had to be seasonal as when you could get here and those kinds of things. So there was this rugged individualism which came about, which is kind of understood as self not self-sufficiency, but as individual initiative. So if I'm out clearing a place and I want to farm, I can't wait for somebody to tell me what to plant, when to plant it, how to plant it, what my harvest is going to look like, how I'm going to fertilize. These things I have to make up on my my own. This seems very unique in, in human history, if you think about just it, how many times have, have, have people under the authority of a certain king gone to a continent thousands of miles away that's a big continent. You know, maybe you have little islands here and there, but that seems very unique, which created, like you say, this rugged individualism. Yeah, and, and you really had no guidance. You had to do that yourself. And in other societies that are organized with kings and rulers and then subjects, uh, the subjects were always at the beck and call of the rulers. And the rulers were determining what they were doing. Um, another factor is what you call social self-sufficiency. So it's not individual, but it's community sufficiency. So you, you had to set up uh, some way of administering justice. I mean, you would create a jail. You would have somebody that would uh, review the crime, you know, with the perpetrator and the victim. Uh, so there was a judicial system that was loosely organized that wasn't part of the crown. It was just the people in the community. Same thing with government. 
if you had to have revenue in order to then uh, do something collective for the community, then the government was there in order to help with the uh, organization of the community from an ideological standpoint. So you have rugged individualism and you have uh, community self-sufficiency. Cultural characteristics, again, completely unique to the American experience. It's really amazing how those seem to converge right at that time with a sort of physical autonomy. And then you have the people, they have to set these things up. Would that be usual in other places historically for people to be looking at creating a government or to be thinking about creating a structure or a system or a justice? Is that is that a... Do we see that ever anywhere else in history, really? Well, it's it's not as uh, not as um, powerful as ours, uh, just due to the distance and the. We didn't even know if we were going to be an English continent, or we we're going to be a French continent, or we we're going to be a mixture of this, that, and the other. So, really, in, for the first hundred years, there was just a lot of mixing going on, but the the dominant settlers ended up being English. So England just absorbed this continent as their own, as opposed to other continents that are usually, or other nations that are conquering the neighboring nation in order to then bring them under their authority. So it's very unique, and I don't think there's any other case where it perpetuated itself and then became its own nation, as opposed to as a revolution against the national leadership and then that becomes not another nation. It's the same nation with just different rulers. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. So those were very impactful experiences that the founders were part of. And the citizens of these colonies were very much tuned into those kinds of things. And it had an influence on everybody's attitude and permeated the culture wherever you went. So we hear about the the historical things going on, sort of this tension that's rising, the, the, what everybody says, no taxation without representation, these sort of circumstances going on, whatever things were, were going on or what, what was then forcing this conversation about the declaration, the continental Congress that comes about, what, what is it that's, that's bringing that together and that sort of propelled this, then this writing of the document? Well, the, the complaint was mostly that uh, we thought of ourselves as Englishmen, which is organized under the Magna Carta, where Englishmen had certain rights as Englishmen. And one of those rights was I would, uh, I would have representation in the parliament. We were not granted representation in any of the colonies individually or as collectives. We were not granted representation. That's the no taxation with representation is more about the representation than the taxation. Sure. The taxation was very, very small, but the argument was you're not treating us like Englishmen, and that isn't right. That's against, literally against the English Constitution in the eyes of our founders. So that was really a uh, major factor in the discontent that turned into a revolution. So we had this small document. I mean, the declaration is not very many words. It's, it's actually incredibly concise. One page. <laughs> Which is amazing when you think about it, sort of, it becomes almost this apex that begins, I think, like the, the audio said, that really defines the principles that, that founded yes. this legacy that, that we get to live out today. Yes. What is the framework for that document? How does it fit together? 
What, what's sort of a 10,000-foot perspective on that, that document, the declaration? Well, I like to review it uh, less than a political document and more of a contract. So I've split it into four parts. Uh, premise, which is kind of establishing the groundwork that we're going to be working from and, and evaluating from. Then you have the principles. And there's a list of uh, five principles that everybody's familiar with as far as the words. But what do they actually mean? And then you have a list of grievances. There's 27 grievances. Uh, we won't go through all of them. We'll touch on a couple of them, but uh, they uh, follow the, with that is followed the declaration. They make an absolute declaration at the end of that document that is separating us from the crown. But you have to understand all of that in the context of philosophy, theology, ideology, and you can really gather the richness of this whole thing by looking at it in that context. Sort of taking on, if I'm understanding correctly, their perspective of how are we looking at it is from those three perspectives. Yes. Philosophically, theologically, and ideologically looking at it. I think that's what you're saying, right? Yes. Looking at it from their perspective and, and trying to understand the words. Yeah, and we, we look at it from the time period it was written in. Um, a lot of people discount the language of the Declaration in the filter of today which is really, you, you've got to understand the context of their time and who they were and what they had as a belief system and a worldview. You can't apply today's modern thought process and philosophy to those days. But as we talked about with the $10, we're going to examine the truth that they were putting forth, the authentic that they were putting forth in the context of their time. And then we'll examine whether or not that applies today. And I think that's an important thing to do, whether you want to sustain these ideals or whether or not you want to change these principles and then have a different form of society. So it seems like the premise is really important. It's sort of the foundation. Uh, let's get into that. I'd like to understand the premise and, and, and understand what it's saying. Yeah, you bet. Well, it's important again. Let's read it. I'll have you read it, but then let's talk about it in the terms of theology, philosophy, and ideology. But go ahead and, and read it and try not to stumble because it is written in the language <laughs> of the old days and it's that. hard to follow sometimes. Okay, so I'll start at the beginning. So when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with one another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. A little complex, uh, worded very difficultly, um, but I think once you start to get into their heads, you can understand exactly how it is written. Let's start with uh, ideology. The first sentence talks about separating people from government. Mm -hmm. So read that little section of that. And when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with one another. So that is man's relationship with government or a societal relationship with government. So there's, there's your ideological connection here. If you go down towards the bottom, then you're going to see a philosophical connection with the respect Yep, that makes sense. So man's respect for one another is a philosophical relationship within society. The center part, which is called the uh, natural law, where they refer to the laws of nature and of nature's God, 
it's important to understand that isn't nature as we understand it today. It's not the flora and the fauna. It's the nature of man. So man's human nature and God's nature. And they're distinguishing between these two elements as having separate and distinct nature. And so it's important to think of that in the theological terms as what do they think of themselves as uh, creation of God? And then what do they think of God as the creator? So they're, they're injecting theology in this first paragraph as well as ideology and philosophy. So it's almost this idea of, of the way nature is and the way God is. Yes. The, the reality or the law, the, the, the unchanging factor of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and how they view it in light of that. Well, and they're talking about that as a, uh, we're looking at ourselves as people in these colonies, as well as the crown. So we're under those authorities of what human nature is like and what God's nature is like. So they're using that as kind of the lens of the filter that we want to look through our relationship. And so that's uh, this premise. Um, another question to ask about the, the premise is, what's the tone of the premise? I mean, this is a revolutionary document declaring independence from the crown. What's the tone of this? Well, it's, it's interesting. It's very rational, would maybe be one way to describe it. Yeah. It, it's not, um, you know, you even think about, what was it, a year that Continental Congress met? Yes. So you think about that year, they thought this through. You can tell in this this paragraph, it's it's very rational, very respectful as well. Yeah, lots of respect, even humility. Yeah. You know, and, and now think of the French Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, any revolutions that we're familiar with, violent, vengeance, hate. This doesn't start that way at all. It's a completely different format and form than any other revolutionary document that has ever been written. So, so it starts out with this phrase, in the course of human events, which is interesting because it's, it's almost like they're starting out with this bigger picture than just what was going on at that time. Well, They had sort of zoomed out and were looking at it from a bigger picture. If there's a course, there's an implication to that. That means somebody set a course. Something has set a course. You don't go out and play golf in a field. You play it on sure. a course. You know, you don't... The course of a river is an established course through nature. So when in the course of human events, they're talking about the expectation that something, some force greater than themselves and some force greater than the crown is directing human events. As Protestant Christians, then they would think of this as providential, divine providential guidance. So they're looking at all of this as a theme under God's plan for humanity since the creation of mankind. So they use this phrase, when in the course of human events. Do you think that the the, the writers of a document saw the, the founding or separation of America as an inevitable thing in the direction that it went? No, uh in fact, they thought of this as a, a completely different trajectory of human civilization. So human civilization from the beginning has always been a ruler-subject form of society. And they are then going to create something completely different than that, as we'll find out as we go through the document. But their understanding of it is they were going to redirect the form of society, which would then be part of the 
providential plan that they understood this to be when in the course of human events. But in, a, in fact, it is not a progression of society. The creation of the United States of America is an aberration in societal form because the rest of the world continues today to be in a ruler-subject society where our founders put us into a people rule and the power resides with the people, as we will discover later. But it's really an aberration in human history. Can you explain that a little bit more, the, the, the progression versus aberration, uh, and, and what you mean by that a little bit more? Well, a progression is how society has always progressed. So back in ancient times, before ancient times, as soon as human, human existence began, then it's been rulers over subjects. And society, economically, as well as politically, is always separated into these classes, into these groups. What the United States is built on is a completely different foundation. And so it's an aberration of that same form of government, of rulers over subjects, rulers over subjects. And whether that's Old Testament stories or whether that's stories in today's world, where most of the population of the world is still in a ruler-subject form of government, where we are not. We're in a people power form of government that isn't subject to the rulers. The rulers are representing us. We're not subject to them. So it's a really, you mentioned the humility the tone, and the tone of um, respect in this. It's just amazing to me that they, they, they saw what was going on. They saw this as a completely different type of government that, that was really being established in the, the principles. And and yet the humility with which they they still showed an honor and respect to the existing system is pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. They, this is very highbrow intellectual thinking put to paper in very succinct forms. And uh, we'll go through this. And what, one of the regrets some of the founders expressed was we made it too short, too succinct. And people just kind of memorized it, but they never understand it. But it's, it's really something. But it was a transformation of civilization. That was their objective. And that's what they accomplished, which is a miracle in and of itself. So in that context, I'm, I'm looking at the last sentence here, and, and I'll read it. It says, A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. So you have sort of this respectful tone, but, you know, in the context of a revolution, you think, okay, now they're going to declare the cause. You know, they're going to get out with their cause. And, and, and is that what we're going to go for next week? No, we're going to go to the principles. And that's the foundational ideas that they're putting forth that then support the grievances. When we go to the grievances, those are the reasons that impel us to this separation. So, so when you say the principles, you mean sort of the next section, the, the life, liberty, and pursuit of, of happiness that that portion. Yes, yes. So so it, it it's interesting because we talk a lot today about freedom, but I'm noticing that freedom is not even found in the Declaration of Independence. What was the difference between liberty and, and freedom? Well, I think you'll just have to wait till the next session and then I can tell you we'll define that. <laughs> Sounds good. Mm-hmm.